This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast. The story has been slowly unfolding over the last several years. Well, really, if you want to take all the cases of abuse into account over decades, but it's only been a news story for the last several years. The sex abuse scandal in the Southern Baptist Convention. It appears that the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't have the structure to deal with this kind of abuse investigation at least at the denominational level, and is the press, do they have the tools necessary to understand the story and the particular problems it presents to the Southern Baptist Convention? It is, after all, the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So why is the SBC story important to leaders and to sex abuse victims in other denominations and churches? Well, that's a really big question, and I think the best way to answer it is that American Protestantism seems to be moving in the direction of congregationalism. Powerful pastors, powerful churches, and even in churches, denominations, I should say, that have some legal and authoritarian ties that bind, the big megachurch with the charismatic pastor seems to be gaining power. When meanwhile, I mean, you have to start off with the fact that the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest non-Catholic flock in America. Then you add on to that the fact that there are thousands and thousands of other Baptist congregations, either in other denominations or independent Baptist churches, and the sorts of problems we see in a Southern Baptist context will only be magnified in these more independent Baptist bodies. And then on top of that, there's something that you and I have been talking about for a long time, and Ryan Berg, the political scientist and poll analyst, has come up with really strong figures on this. There's no question that independent megachurches are, the, are like the fastest growing form of Christianity in America, both evangelical and charismatic. And these independent churches are like Baptist polity on steroids. They have no structure authority at all, you know, beyond maybe a pastor, and in sometimes the pastor's own self-selected board. Hang on with me. I'm going to keep going here for a second. Meanwhile, what happens with the Southern Baptist Convention is also a window into some of our other kind of semi-congregationalist bodies, some of the more evangelical forms of Presbyterian life, the Churches of Christ, you know, and other denominations, Assemblies of God, and others, where you have what functions as a congregational polity, even if you have a larger national structure. But then on top of that, there's the simple fact that whether you're talking about Roman Catholicism, or whether you're talking about the Episcopal Church, United Methodism, and some of the more hierarchical churches, or whether you're talking about the Southern Baptist Convention, there are patterns 
in the process of sexual abuse that are common through all of these bodies, the fact that a lot of it grows out of either youth work programs and a lack of supervision or among senior clergy, it grows out of pastoral counseling where people cross boundaries in one-on-one private counseling sessions that they may not be qualified to do or know how to handle their own feelings and emotions. The most famous counselor to the counselors years ago said to me that, you know, if a pastor is talking to a woman in the congregation and she shares something very explicit and emotional about her private life and the struggle she's having, he said, if the pastor responds with a similar anecdote from his own life, you know, at the level of, of an intimate memory or a problem he struggled with, he said, everybody knows what that means. He says, it's as destructive as reaching for a zipper, was the way he put it. So that you have the pastoral counseling situation. You have patterns that even in the congregational churches, another pattern that I would point out is the growth of the superstar pastor. And this is something that happens in structured denominations as well as others. And in a lot of denominations, I'm sure this is true in the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate, it's certainly true in the Baptist life, you have very powerful leaders who have their protégés and their disciples, and literally maybe even members of their extended family that they're tied to. And so even though these are not legal ties in many cases, this may cause a bureaucracy to want to protect a certain person, which can lead to actions that hide abuse. At which point now, is it just the individual who's liable, or was it the institution that protected them? So I could go on and on with that, but I hope that gives you kind of an overview of the fact that this isn't just a Southern Baptist situation. There are patterns here, and the fallout, legal fallout, financial fallout, can be very similar in other churches as well. I saw a fantastic religion news service story that was really kind of an explainer on the whole thing, because this is not an easy story to tell, even from a journalistic standpoint, is it? Well, in that case, you're dealing with a veteran religion reporter, Bob Smetana, who was a religion reporter in Nashville, which meant he covered the kind of cluster of agencies and bureaucracies in Nashville that many people refer to as the Baptist Vatican. And then he actually worked for the polling arm of Lifeway, which is a project that spun out of a Baptist agency. So this is a guy who really speaks the language. He probably knows where a lot of the bodies are buried. He knows many of these personalities. I would also recommend even though it's from an openly theologically progressive Baptist news service, there was a story that I'm going to put up on, on Get Religion from the, the liberal agency called Baptist News Global. And this is a group that very openly takes a more mainland Protestant doctrinal approach on moral issues and theological issues and obviously political issues. But that doesn't mean they don't know what they're talking about when it comes to tracing who some of the individual Southern Baptist leaders who have been involved at the local church level, and then they're involved at the agency level. And then all of a sudden, 
they're on the executive committee, which is the body that's at the middle of the current problem. So let me briefly explain a piece of Southern Baptist polity here. The key to the Southern Baptist Convention is that the convention itself only exists for two days a year, legally. The SBC is a national convention, literally, made up of messengers, often called delegates in news stories, but the key term is messengers, representing their totally autonomous congregational local churches. And while they're together, they cast votes that have authority in their denomination. They pick people, they elect people who then select boards. And in this case, the national convention voted to have a third party independent investigation of accusations against the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention that they may have, I don't think anybody's been accused of sexual abuse among the members of the executive committee. The question is whether they properly handled some information that they had about accusations. Now, the executive committee is empowered by that two-day convention, that big national meeting. It kind of runs the denomination for the convention, but that doesn't mean that it is the convention. It is, in effect, an agency. Now, this is where I hope that members of other denominations start paying attention, because the key thing here, when you get involved in sexual abuse lawsuits, the, the question is, who's got money, who's got property, who has insurance policies, and who is liable for the appointment or the protection of individual pastors or others who have committed abuse? The national structure of the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't have the power to appoint pastors. That's totally at the local level. A lot of people have said the Southern Baptist Convention should create a big agency that oversees the pastors and herds them in and disciplines them, etc., except that doesn't fit with Baptist polity. Asking the Southern Baptist or the Assemblies of God or somebody else, asking them to do that is like saying to Catholics, hey, you know that Pope thing? You really got to get rid of the Pope thing. And this is, like you said earlier, this is a theological point. They believe the best expression of the authority of the church is the local congregation. Now, that simply isn't true for Methodists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, various forms of Lutherans, certainly not the Orthodox or Roman Catholicism. So who is liable in a lot of these cases varies from denomination to denomination. But that doesn't mean that leaders of these other churches don't need to be thinking right now, how responsible are we to the removal or disciplining or investigating of these men, in some cases women, who are, have these accusations made against them. It's different in every church, but the stakes can be very similar. And it's about budgets, it's about insurance. So you had members of the SBC Executive Committee saying, hey, we don't want to give up our secret files. We don't want to give up our client lawyer privilege and turn it over to this third-party group, even though we've been ordered to do so by the two-day convention. We don't want to do that because it could bankrupt the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, what does that mean? Well, no, it means that it could conceivably bankrupt the individual agency called the Executive Committee 
or it could hit its insurance policies or some of its property. But it couldn't take on the whole convention because the convention is this whole other nebulous large body. But what about Lutherans? What about Methodists? What about a situation where you have bishops involved in recommending pastors or in keeping records on pastors? So I hope you can see what I'm getting at here. People in other denominations have got to look at this SBC thing and think, how does this apply to us? If there's sexual abuse at one of our seminaries, that seminary can probably be liable. Insurance, property, budgets, etc. I think that's probably the case in the Southern Baptist Convention if the abuse occurs on a seminary campus or in activities directly relinked you know, to a seminary campus. So anyway, I hope you can see what I'm getting at there. Do we know why the executive committee finally did relent and agree to, in some form or another, I don't understand all the legalities involved, waive what they were claiming was an attorney-client privilege and open their files. Do we know what pressure was brought to bear upon them within the Southern Baptist context that got them to reverse themselves? Well, I mean, we can see this in some of the better reporting by the people who've been on this. Another example would be the Houston Chronicle, and a particular reporter named Robert Downen. And, of course, he was a part of the investigative team that broke this whole thing open about two years ago with the reports of hundreds and hundreds of cases of sexual abuse in Southern Baptist contexts, you know, in local congregations. And then once people began talking about it, you began to hear accusations against people that were on seminary campuses, etc. So there were several key moments in this, and it led to the resignation of several members of the executive committee. And the executive committee is big. I mean, it's 40, 50 I mean, people or more. So you did have some people resign. You had some people change their votes because of the outcry. And what happened was state conventions, local associations, and in, I think, one of the most telling moves, the leaders of all of the Southern Baptist seminaries, all of them, said to the executive committee, hey, guys, who's your boss? Who's your boss? And the boss is the National Convention. What did the National Convention do? It passed a motion ordering the executive committee to have a third-party investigation and to waive client attorney privilege to open up its own actions on these situations, a direct order from the convention. So, I mean, here's what's interesting about this. I published at Get Religion a memo by an attorney that made a great point, and that was the Southern Baptists all along have been protecting themselves from some sexual abuse cases by saying we don't have a national structure. There's no there there like it is with the Episcopalians and the Methodists, whatever. It's just the convention. Now you have the executive committee saying, no, on some issues, we're more powerful than the convention. And we're acting, even though we're violating what they told us to do, we're actually acting to protect them. Several lawyers made the point that was opening up all of the holdings of this whole Southern Baptist Convention up to lawsuits. If you could point at this executive committee and said, nope, there's the College of Cardinals. There's the authority. There's the National Methodist structure. There's the National Lutheran structure. They're now saying they have the power, not the local churches. We don't always have to obey the local churches. Okay, 
So you can see where I'm going there. The executive committee now has backed down, and we'll see what happens next with this third-party guidepost investigation. So, Terry, I'm not a journalist, but if I'm an editor, I'm telling my reporters, this is just the beginning of this story. Yes, it's been a story up to this point, and a long one, but the sto- there is uh, now a whole new chapter that is going to unfold before our eyes. How should the media stay on this? Well, let me gently dissent. I think what editors right now are saying, how do we get the biggest possible headline out of a Southern Baptist Convention scandal? I think they're looking at it as this is a Southern Baptist problem. They're going to get nailed, and that will be a big headline. And what I'm saying is that that's probably not where the story will affect most of their listeners and their readers. What I hope they do is look at how this affects other churches, not just Southern Baptists. Let me give you an example. I think seminaries are absolutely crucial in all of this. Now, a Southern Baptist seminary has its own board, and it's its own institution. There is no agency that runs the Southern Baptist seminaries, which means also Southern Baptists ordain their clergy at the individual local church level. A congregation ordains somebody. Now, let's back off for a second and look at Lutherans or Methodists or whatever. And this may vary from the ELCA to the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Do Lutheran Church Missouri Synod seminaries, do they stand alone, or is there an agency that runs the seminaries and to which they answer? Well, they they answer to a number of entities. They're not independent in the same way, and they fall under a pretty standard kind of ecclesiastical supervision on more than one level, on the, on the kind of regional level and then also on the national level. So they're, I wouldn't call them independent in any real sense of the word. Okay. And of course, that's similar with Methodists, although they're, I mean, like something like Asbury Seminary, I believe is an independent seminary. Okay. So what does that have to do with news? Okay. Well, obviously, if someone is abused on a seminary campus, by someone who is a student or by a faculty member or whatever, that seminary is in big trouble. Now, in the Southern Baptist Convention, that trouble probably stops with the agency, the president, and the board of directors and trustees of that seminary. And that seminary's property and that seminary's insurance policies, etc. And I, I imagine those seminaries are right now checking how good their insurance policies are and stuff. But you could see that in a denominational situation where the seminaries are not independent, do you see how someone could not just sue the seminary, but could probably sue the denomination that is supervising and to whom that seminary answers and that denomination that then ordains the clergy, not just an individual congregation. So instead of suing an individual congregation or a local pastor or a youth leader or a volunteer abuse someone, you're not just suing the individual congregation, you're now suing the Catholic Church diocese or the Methodist Regional Conference or the larger body that actually owns that property hired that clergy, appointed that clergy person to some degree or another, and thus the lawyers are going to do what lawyers do. 
they're going after the biggest pot of money and the biggest pot of insurance and property, etc. Now, this is all really complicated, and it's not as sexy as Southern Baptists are hiding abuse. But you know what? Quite frankly, the sexual abuse story is so massive. And I mean, it, it, it affects public schools, something our newspapers rarely cover. It affects sporting teams at every conceivable level. Obviously, the Boy Scouts are now being driven into bankruptcy in all of this. At some point, you've got to get past the Southern Baptist headline and say, what are the other themes? I think the issue of pastors doing counseling is an issue that editors should assign a reporter to look at. Do the pastors have to have insurance like a regular therapist would? Does the individual congregation have to? Does the denomination, does the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, are they in any way responsible for the behavior of pastors that they ordained and helped appoint to a congregation if that pastor goes off the rail in counseling and begins to abuse, usually a man abusing women? I mean, so these are big stories. They're complicated stories, and they may not be the stories that the editors want. But hiding behind it all is the fact that all religious denominations, all religious groups have a tendency to think, well, if we can just silence this victim, if we could just get a non-disclosure agreement with them, we can fix this up without it being a big public mess. When in reality, what we're seeing now with the Southern Baptists and with others, obviously we saw with the Roman Catholic Church, at some point, huh, what's hidden in closets will be shouted from rooftops. What advice would you give to individual congregations regarding media inquiries? And it's going to be especially in play with the Southern Baptist Convention because it's not like thinking call a district president or a bishop or the diocese yeah. office. They're going to be calling individual congregations, and that receptionist or secretary is going to be answering the phone. Well, the deacons should appoint a committee that's in charge of relating to the press, simply stated. Or they should say, we will appoint a member of our congregation, maybe a lawyer who's a member of the congregation, and they will serve as the spokesperson. And it would be good if you got ahead of it. If you're a major Southern Baptist church, you should probably call the local newspaper and say, we'd like to meet with the editor. We'd like to meet with a reporter. We'd like to say, this is who we are. This is how we're structured. And if some sort of accusation were to somehow surface against one of our volunteers or some that's in any way connected to our church, this is who you call. This is who you talk to. And also know that our church is looking at its insurance policies. It's looking at its liabilities. And we're learning about this right now. Our whole denomination is learning about this. Oh, by the way, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Group for the Southern Baptist Convention, the ERLC, the committee, they put out a whole bunch of curriculum for churches and for small group meetings on this topic and for standards. The one thing the Southern Baptist Convention can do is kick your church out of the denomination, out of the convention. And they've done that a couple of times on issues of racism and sexual abuse, where 
a church said, no, we want this pastor, even though he's been accused of so-and-so, so-and-so. In fact, he's even been convicted of it. It's fine. We've forgiven him. This is our guy. The, the SBC has thrown some churches out of connection with the convention. So what does that have to do with news coverage? Well, first of all, that's a pretty interesting story. And you might call the major Southern Baptist churches in your city or in the area served by your newspaper or TV station and say, when are y'all having these meetings, these forums that are in the ERLC guidelines and curriculum? Could, could we send a reporter to sit in on one of your public discussions with your congregation of this issue and how people are supposed to report an accusation and how your committee, your congregation has pledged that any accusations will be turned over to police, you know, as well as to the, the deacon body, you know, and other things that are recommended by this, this new curriculum from the SBC. In other words, you cover the subject, not just the individual scandal. You cover the attempts to prevent the scandal, deal with the scandal, and heal the scandal, as well as the scandal. I think that's the bigger story. The problem is it requires lots of time. We live in an age where a lot of newspapers don't have as many reporters as they used to, and they don't have religion specialists, and they have editors who don't get religion. That makes covering these stories very tough. Have the media, let's just talk about the narrow case of the Southern Baptist Convention, have they got a pretty tight bead on how this quote-unquote denomination is different than and how it impacts the story of sexual abuse yeah. than, say, the Roman Catholic Church or any other more hierarchical or overtly organized church body? I think they're learning, and I, and I think you, that you did a good job there earlier of mentioning the RNS piece, Bob Smetana, there are some major newsrooms in the country right now that have reporters who know what they're doing on this story. And I think that's helping steer it in this direction. I, the, the new religion writer at the Nashville Tennessean arrived on the beat, walked into the newsroom, and this story hit him on his first day in the newsroom. You know, how it, welcome to your new job, you know, straight into the executive committee furor. So I, I actually think if you had asked me this question a year ago, I would have said there was a lot of confusion about Southern Baptist polity. And frankly, a lot of reporters seem to think that Baptists were like Methodists or Episcopalians or whatever. I'm seeing a much better sense of understanding in the press right now. And I think we owe that to some veteran reporters like Bob Smetana, Adele Banks, Robert Downen at the Houston Chronicle, who's been all over the story in recent years. I think we're beginning to see language put into play that's helping guide some other members of the press. Now, what happens when this thing ends up on the CBS Evening News or CNN or somewhere where they don't have religion writers at all? Who knows what happens at that time? But we will cross that bridge when we get to it. With, with only about 30 seconds here, should those CBS reporters read Smetana's piece and get the, oh, at least yeah, the lay of the of land? Of course. They, they, yeah, they should have a, a, a folder right now you know, of, of these explainers, including the ones from the denomination. I mean, Baptist Press is involved in this because they're run by the executive committee. 
but they've had some materials out that, that kind of explain Baptist life and polity. And find your local seminary. Find the nearest seminary and call up the church history professor. Go ahead and build the sources just like this was a normal, serious subject that your newspaper covers. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate, also the book Pop Goes Religion. He's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.